Reading today from the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwellings. These he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Let us pray. Gracious, loving God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for time. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the beautiful music we just heard. Thank you for your mercy and, and for your judgment, God. Um, we are a vulnerable people. We love you and we seek you and we struggle to do that. Come Holy Spirit, lead us, meet us, shape us, guide us as only you can. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, years ago, back in Pennsylvania, I was out with our son Jack, and we hit a snow squall, and I was turning in to a shopping center, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't like there were inches and inches of snow, it wasn't like inches and inches of snow, but it was getting slick, and I turned into a shopping center, and I started to slide. And then all of a sudden, bang, I smacked the curb. Just a curb smack, right? So I thought it was basically okay. And I kept driving. And then I began to realize I didn't have control. Steering was not responding normally. It turns out that I bent the wheel and I bent the control arm for the wheel when I hit the curb. And what astounded me, and what still astounds me thinking about that moment, was how fast my slide increased in momentum and how much damage resulted, not obviously, but at a deep, unseen place that resulted in me not having control. It was a wheel-gripping ride home, let me tell you. We made it, and we got the car fixed. Our wonderful uh, VIX Transmissions mechanics there in Ellisburg, PA, a little shout-out. But it's easier to underestimate the power of slipping and the damage it can do. Well, Jude, a brother of our Lord, is writing to the early church in 60s AD. He's writing to address spiritual slippage. 
Dear friends, he says in verse three, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that the Lord has once for all entrusted to us, his people. So Jude wanted to tell them, he wanted to tell them all about God's grace and good news of the gospel, but circumstances compel him to go a different way. And we learn about that in verse four. He says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord, pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Slippage. This isn't just a problem. This is people causing slippage. It's not just an abstract debate. We've got certain individuals who are misleading people. Jude isn't merely concerned about books or ideas. Jude is concerned about people coming in and misleading God's people. They are ungodly people, he says in verse four, who pervert the grace of our God into license. So we catch immediately that these folks are causing trouble in two key ways. They deny Christ as Lord, as the one who's large and in charge, who's the true leader of all. And secondly, they mistakenly believe that God's grace means we can live however we want, since God will forgive us anyway. But rather than launching into, atta- into an attack on these heresies, Jude instead takes his audience to other examples of lostness and slippage and kind of that bang moment, if you will, of brokenness and and out of controlness in the biblical and spiritual history of God's people. He cites three examples, two from the Old Testament and one that's kind of trippy and might shock you. Verse five, back to verse five. I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the last day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So first, we, I'll give you the, the first two uh, examples from the Old Testament. There is the example of the Israelites, whom God delivered from slavery in Egypt, but who then rebelled against God and never got the land God promised them, right? Again, Jude describes it by saying, the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Psalm 78, 22 interprets Israel's failure by saying they did not believe in God and did not trust in God's saving power. Slippage and dire consequences. Then there is the example of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 18 and 19, whose sin God says is immense and who treat God's angels horribly when they arrive. And a person of no less importance than the biblical figure of Abraham intercedes before God for these cities. And even though God still agrees to spare the cities, if only 10 righteous persons can be found there, it turns out only Lot and his family are saved 
as the angels rain down destructive fire on these cities. Destruction so fiery that scholars tell us smoke was still rising from the site of Sodom and Gomorrah in the first century AD. This picture alerts us to the profound damage that sin and rebellion before a holy God can do. It is no trivial matter. Now, the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament doesn't mean we should interpret every natural disaster as God's punishment now. Two key places in Jesus' teaching seem to repudiate this view. In John 9, when Jesus is walking along and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they're, they're thinking in that ancient view that if bad things happen to you, it's because God is zapping you. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the, work, so that the works of God might be revealed or might be displayed in him. And then in Luke 13, Jesus talks about those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. He says, Jesus says, do you think they were more guilty than any of the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Jesus seems to direct people away from the idea that bad things happen only as punishment. He instead focuses on seeking God's glory in the midst of the bad things and on seeing bad things as an opportunity to turn toward God, right? So Jesus takes that idea and calls us and says, look for the glory of God in the suffering hardship and look at suffering and hardship and tragedy as an opportunity to turn back to God as a warning. So both Jesus and the Old Testament are in sync as far as saying that sin is dangerous and that sin is an opportunity to turn toward God. But we we don't have to say it's always automatically uh, punitive when when struggle or pain comes upon you. Jesus seems to step back from that view. Jude takes us to a cosmic level with this too. In verse six, he says, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. What in the world is going on here? Well, the first point is that while the previous examples we're hearing about judgment and rebellion involve the world, Israel, Sodom, and Gomorrah, here we're not talking about the worldly realm anymore. Here we're talking about the spiritual realm And we find that apparently there is disobedience and rebellion there too. Apparently these angels, as described by Jude, did not know their place. They didn't stay on post. They, verse six, did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. Scholars speculate, of course, about precisely what this means. Evangelical Bible scholar Douglas Moo summarizes it well. He says that in Jude's day, there was a popular belief that the reference in Genesis 6 to the sons of God who came down to earth and cohabited with the daughters of men, this is actually about angels, scholars think, some scholars think. Jews in the centuries before Christ were really into angels. And Jewish interpreters 
had built an elaborate story on the basis of Genesis 6. They said that the, they said that the sons of God in Genesis 6 referred to angels. And Jewish spiritual thinkers attributed much or even all of the evil in the world to the pernicious influence of these fallen angels, as Dr. Moo says. It is thought that Jude has this early Jewish interpretation of Genesis 6 in mind when he's writing this letter. Because a little later in this letter, Jude quotes from the Jewish writing that has a lot of bad angel stuff in it. And it appears that Jude may be writing to Christians who have Jewish backgrounds, who used to be Jewish, who converted to Christianity. So it sounds like Jude is familiar with the angelic rebellion interpretation of Genesis 6. It sounds like it's in the background here. And his audience is these Jewish Christians who would have been very familiar with this idea of bad angels rebelling from God. And as one scholar put it, these angels had been entrusted by God with positions of authority, but they abandoned their homes, their proper dwelling places by rebelling against God. So to summarize Jude's three examples here, God delivers Israel in grace and love, and then God destroys some Israelites in response to their lack of faith in him. God saves Israel and proclaims his intention to bless the nations through them. And God annihilates peoples whose wickedness is unrelenting and destructive. And God employs angels under his authority, but if they get out of line, God, deals, God can deal with them too, and God does. So the theme of our text today certainly is judgment. Judgment of people and judgment of angels. It's a wake-up call. It shakes us up to hear that God deals with sin and rebellion in a hard way. Four main things we need to keep in mind when dealing with these examples. First of all, sin and rebellion is nothing new. And since it's nothing new, it shouldn't surprise us, right? Second, sin and rebellion is not okay, not ever. This is a strong word for us to take sin seriously. Not more seriously than Jesus, but seriously. Third, God is still in charge, the fact that rebellion is happening, is still happening, doesn't mean God is less in charge. God's goodness is not based on polls or who's on his side. God is God all by himself, period. God can handle rebellious nations. God can handle rebellious people groups. God can handle rebellious angels. And so it's no wonder that as we read a few weeks ago, the psalmist says, do not fret because of those who are evil. In a sense, in that way, God's judgment is a word of comfort for us. He really is in charge and he really is large. So sin and rebellion is not new. Sin and rebellion is not okay. God is still in charge and then fourthly, God's judgment is not random, right? Like someone we have to walk on eggshells around. Jude provides us with explanations of what happened here. We get God's rationale for his judgment. 
God's judgment is a response to the rebellion of those under his sovereignty. So the big message here is clear. Don't mess with God. No one should take God lightly. God is not to be trifled with. But there's one more thing, one more word really that we must take note of because the message here is not merely to be warned. There's also this in verse three. Jude urges his readers to contend for the faith that the Lord has once and for all entrusted to us, his people. The great pastor scholar Eugene Peterson translates it this way. Fight with everything you have in you for this faith entrusted to us as a gift to guard and cherish. This particular word occurs only here in the New Testament. The Greek word for contend comes from a cluster of words that mean contend, fight, strive again, conflict, conflict, subdue. Scholar E.O. E. Bloom points out, the basic meaning of this word is that like an intense effort of a wrestling match. The verb form is a present infinitive showing that the Christian struggle is to be continuous. Notice here where the focus is. It's on our task. It's not that our focus is to be on the people or even the angelic beings who rebelled. Oh, those bad rebels. Turns out we're the rebels too, but we have to, we have to fight against that. Our focus is that very fight. Our focus is not on fighting with the people we disagree with. Our focus is to fight for our faith. How's your faith? You know, the, the mechanic, when I took our car in to get it fixed, after I bent the, the wheel and bent the control rod, he said that part of the problem was likely the fact that my tires were worn out. That's why I slid so easily. The tread was worn down. It wasn't gripping. And soon, I couldn't even steer. How is your grip? Have you allowed the tread of your faith tires to be worn down? If so, watch out. You can slide and slide. And a slide can build its own momentum. Jesus knew this and he knows us. He knows you. And so he doesn't leave us alone in that contending. He sends us a counselor, a divine counselor, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there to prevent our slides and arrest our slides. The Holy Spirit comes to us in grace and works in key venues. The Holy Spirit is always working. The only way for us to get to God is through God. It, it, when, when the scripture calls us to contend for our faith, it's assuming we contend not in ourselves, but in the power that God provides. God never calls us to do something that he doesn't give us the power to do. He sends the Holy Spirit to do it.
And so we wanna get into venues where the Holy Spirit can help us sort of build up our faith tread, so to speak. We're doing that right now. And the beautiful worship we just heard. Oh, I love that. About, about God's goodness chasing us. That builds up my faith grip, doesn't it? Doesn't it build up yours? Prayer as well. As I said the other day in a meeting, this pastor is rediscovering prayer. You know, what is the Christian life but an, sort of an endless rediscovery of things you already know? Right? I'm discovering prayer again. Like as if, you know, as if I didn't already know that. Prayer, praying before I do anything else, trying to pray or at least weaving it in to my daily life. Also essential in building up our tread is studying. Studying, to be a Christian is to enter into a conceptual framework of Christianity where we have to learn some words and atonement, kingdom, resurrection, forgiveness. People go to a Starbucks and we have to learn all of these terms, you know, mocha, joka, baka, waka, and all that stuff, right? If people can learn that, you know, we can learn theology, right? Some scripture. Kids go to school and they have these massive playbooks, whatever, through their, in their sports teams and stuff they have to learn or whatever. Kids can learn that. They can learn theology. We don't dumb down. We raise up and we, we in the spirit, in confidence of the spirit, we help people study. That helps them keep their grip because more than ever, there is so much disinformation and so many opportunities to slide and disinformation and temptation that pulls us into the curb and bang. So worship, prayer, study, community, especially in small groups, and especially just in, in meeting with somebody to connect with. I've been reading uh, G.K. Chesterton, The Everlasting Man. Earl Palmer used to always talk about The Everlasting Man, G.K. Chesterton. Well, G.K. Chesterton is really hard, man. <laughs> He's hard to read. I got my, my buddy, Jason Diamante, one of our new members, who I'm reading it with him. And Jason's a smart guy. He's helping me with it. I need, we need help to learn these things. We need, it helps to have a partner. Same goes with scripture. So are you, are you sharing? So worship, prayer, study, sharing in community, in small groups, essential uh, to keeping our grip. These are all venues where the Holy Spirit works for us. Service, getting out of ourselves through serving. Jesus shows up in the least of these. He's present. He says, As you do in the least of these, you've done it to me. You've done it for me. So we meet and we serve others. Jesus meets us there, helps us get a grip. Worship, prayer, study, community, service. These are places where the Holy Spirit is operating in this venue to help us keep our faith treads alive. He doesn't leave us to ourselves to do that. How's your grip? How's your driving? Are you slipping? Do you feel like you're losing it? It's easy to do that. That's what we're here for. We have Alpha coming up this week where you can be praying for that because that's a place for all of us to get a grip once again. I'm teaching on the person of Jesus in our first session. That's good for me. Getting back to basics. You can never know the basics enough. How is your grip? Well, we learn in these texts the scary reality of judgment of sin. We lean into the fact that Jesus Christ, our Lord, has taken the ultimate judgment upon himself and said, it is finished. That the judge, Jesus Christ, is also the savior. But we need to stay in his grip. That is the key to keeping our own grip. 
These are the ways we do it. May it be so for you. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we hear these stories of judgment and it is scary. God, help us to take seriously the power of slippage and the bang and the bending and the damage and the loss of control. We want to grip you, and when we do that, we find out we're already gripping your grip. Help us, each of us in our lives, whether through worship, prayer, study, community life, service, all these ways, all these venues in which you're present, Holy Spirit, to help us keep our grip and avoid the dangers and pitfalls of sin. We love you, and we thank you so much for your commitment to us, and we praise you for keeping us gripped, that we might grip your grip. Oh, we need it. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.